here we go. Look at this. Auxiliary statements coming out uh, on a different day. What is this? It's a different episode. It's something new. Pretty crazy if you ask me. I'm feeling pretty good today. I'm excited. Um, I'm not feeling as good as I normally would because I don't have Dan by my side. This is a solo app. This is kind of an experiment. We'll see how this goes. Might not get released. Might suck. We'll see. But it is me. Hello, I am Jack. Um, 50% of auxiliary statements here with you today. Not sure what I'm going to call this episode. Not really even sure what is going to happen. But whatever is going to happen is going to be exciting. And we'll get through it together. So, what are we doing here today? Well, indeed, what are we doing? Well, it's something a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, you've heard that a million times. Um, today we're not talking economics, we're not talking politics, we're not talking sociology, we're not talking anthropology, we're not talking psychology, we are indeed not talking anyology. What we're talking about today is my favorite book of all time. This book rocks. Today we're talking about Tolkien Silmarillion. Uh, if I had a nickel for every time I've annoyed a friend, a family member, a loved one with uh, how much I talk about this book, uh, I would be a wealthy man, all right? Um, uh, but I'm not a wealthy man, and I don't get nickels for bothering people. So the Silmarillion, man, wow. I really hope some of you have read this book because um, I kind of want to talk about it with some people who aren't just going to, you know, stare at me blankly. Um, but yeah, wow, why are we talking about this book on what is ostensibly a socialist podcast. Tolkien, not a socialist, not a socialist indeed. Not a super political guy, uh, but you can just kind of get from his general air that he uh, was not one of us. Um, love him to death, though, uh, regardless, I suppose. So here we are. Uh, why are we talking about a work of fiction? Why indeed? Never thought that would happen on auxiliary statements. And especially why are we talking about a book that is so fantastical, one that uh, doesn't really mirror our world at all in a very literal sense. Well, not a literal sense, I suppose in more of like a, a serious sense. Uh, we don't have elves in, in uh, the real world. We don't really have uh, much of what's in this book. But, you know, eh, why are we reading fantasy? We're reading fantasy because fantasy is fun. And also, because this book is just a phenomenal study in myth. And if you, if you bear with me here for a second, then I think we'll get to why I wanted to talk about this book on the podcast, right? So what is the Silmarillion? I think a lot of people, myself included, let's say you've just read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? The three books, right? Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, fucking Two Towers, uh, Return of the King, probably read The Hobbit too. Um, those are all, those are phenomenal books, right? Some of the best books ever written. Hobbit's one of the best like adventure books of all time. When I read it when I was a kid, I was like, oh my god, this is the best book of all time. Lord of the Rings trilogy, a bit more mature um, and also awesome, but none of those books really come close to being what the Silmarillion is to me. So what is the Silmarillion? Well, I think... A lot of people think that it's just a really boring, like, lore 
to give you background on the Lord of the Rings world, right? So this is just something that, like, nerds read to be like, uh, well, actually, uh, the Valar uh, is, uh, uh, that you're uh, discussing is actually uh, Manway, and Manway is uh, less powerful than uh, Melkor. Um, and that's one reason to read it, and that's kind of what it is a little bit, but it's, it's, it's a mythology, right? Um, it's the creation story of Tolkien's universe. It's the background on Tolkien's universe. It's how everything works. Um, and it's a collection of, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be, um, over the top. It's a collection of some of the greatest stories ever told, uh, for real. Um, this book is structured differently to, uh, any other book you might have read, um, just by virtue of it being a mythology, being a cosmogony, which that just means um, the kind of the creation story of the universe. Um, it's split into five parts, okay? So you got, first up, you got the Ainulindale, okay? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, that's like the actual creation story, how something came out of the void. Uh, it's very short. It's only like seven pages, but it's like, how did we get something from nothing? It's ostensibly answers that question. Then you got the Valaquenta. That's the second part. That one's also quite short. All that is is kind of just like, however I phrase this, this is going to piss off some Tolkien nerds. So I'll just say it's kind of like the, it explains who the gods are in this world, right? And they're not really gods. Uh, they're not really omnipotent. They can't create things really, but they're kind of like gods. We can think of them like that, at least for the purposes of this read through. Then you got the third part, which is by far the biggest part. That's the Quenta Silmarillion. That's basically what takes up the entire book. Um, and that's just a collection of stories from the first age and before. Um, and then you got the fourth part, which is the Akalabeth. The Akalabeth is uh, supposedly that's what Amazon is going to be drawing from to do their show. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a lot of thoughts on their show. We'll talk about that later. It's basically the story of the second age, which is just a period of time before the actual, like, Lord of the Rings trilogy takes place. And then finally, you got the fifth chapter, which is uh, kind of short. It's called Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age or something like that, and it's uh, basically just sums up the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy in, you know, 20, 30 pages, or however long it is. Um, so like I said, we're going to be talking about the Idol in Delay today, um, and hopefully I can explain why we're doing this on a socialist podcast, okay? So... One question that should be on everybody's mind seeing this in the feed is like, why are we talking about, why are we talking about something so fantastic, right? Why are we talking about a world that doesn't resemble ours really at all, even though this is supposed to be ostensibly how our world was created and supposed to be myths for us? Um, you know, this is nothing like our world. Why would we talk about it? How can we draw lessons from this? Um, well, first of all, this book just rocks. It's awesome. I want everybody to read this book because it's so good and, um, not nearly enough people have read it because it kind of is kind of like off-putting, just the language that's used. Uh, it's hard to get everything on the first or even like fifth read-through uh, in my case. Um, and just by virtue of it being mythology, it's totally unbelievable, right? And because of that, it's you might think that it's unrelatable to our own world, okay? I would disagree. I would say that the reason authors create fantastic worlds like this, like, you know, Middle-earth or, you know, Arda or whatever... Um, is, is to use those fantastic elements to relentlessly criticize the present, okay? And that's totally what Tolkien's doing here. He, whether you kind of get it on your read-through or not, Tolkien is really intentionally criticizing the modern world in a number of ways, okay? And so like I said, like, Tolkien isn't some socialist. He's not, or he wasn't some, you know, like, utopian idealist. But, 
and this is kind of like the thesis for I'm doing this, uh, and <laughs> bear with me, I think that Tolkien unintentionally with this book, with the Silmarillion, created a piece of utopian fantasy um, that is like unparalleled in, in, uh, in literature, honestly. Um, and I think that he did that in such a way that parallels idealized socialist values, okay? That might seem insane. Uh, bear with me. I'm going to try and explain that to you as we read through this book. Um, but that's what I think. I've read this book so many goddamn times, uh, cover to cover. Every time you do, you pick up a million different things that you didn't on your other read-throughs. You can totally just pick up this book, flip to a chapter in the Quenta, and just read it, and just, again, like, greatest stories of all time, okay? But what we're going to do is explain this book, for those of you who haven't read it before, today we're just going to do the Island Delay, Island Delay, um, and we're going to see what values we can draw from it. How was Tolkien criticizing the modern age? How can we relate to the criticisms that he was making? Um, and what can we learn from it, honestly? Because there is quite a bit to learn. Um, whew, and so, yeah, if you're still with me, if you haven't kind of turned this off because that sounds absolutely insane, um, let's begin, as a wise man once said, at the beginning, okay? So, the Ainulindale. This is the first seven pages. Um, just so you guys know, I'll be reading from the second edition. Um, it's the Houghton Mifflin copy. It's just a paperback. Um, it's got some awesome art of the Elves Awakening of Kuivianen on the top. A lot of you, if you're Americans, probably have this copy too. Um, get the second edition, obviously. I mean, if you can find, like, a first edition copy, get that. Damn, send it to me. But um, second edition has uh, some, like, corrected errors, and it's also got this letter at the front that I think Tolkien sent to Milton Waldman, who was just one of his friends. Let me look. Yeah, yeah, to Milton Waldman in 1951, um, basically just explaining his world, right? Explaining what we know is like Middle Earth, but what's actually called Arda, but what's the universe is actually called Ea. Um, and he explains what he was trying to do. That letter is really great to read. It contains a lot of spoilers. So if you just want to go into this totally dry, you can. Um, but yeah, let's begin. The Ainulindale. Dan and I always say with our readings, like half jokingly, don't read what, what, what we're reading because we don't want you to realize how uh, off the mark we can be or perhaps I can be, um, but with this, read it, read it, totally read it, it's seven pages, the Island Lay, it's awesome, there's so much packed into it, and really don't be put off by the language, because it only gets better, and once you kind of get past his, like, you know, very verbose, very wordy, like, like, King James-esque, uh, language, oh, you're gonna find the best stories of all time, seriously, and, and I say that, uh, completely sincerely. So the first line of the Island Lay, um, is something like there was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar, right? Okay, so that's the first thing you need to know. In this world, there's only one god, uh, and I wonder why Tolkien did that. Tolkien was like arch-Catholic, number one, right? Dude's very religious. Um, and even though in all of his works, he would say that, you know, to be wary of allegory, because he wasn't necessarily trying to be allegorical in all of his stuff, he says that, but there's a lot of allegory in here at the same time too, right? So there's only one God and it is basically the God you would recognize from, you know, like Christian, Judaic or Islamic traditions, right? It's like this all powerful, omnipotent God. Nothing else can touch this dude. It is a he, um, it is a gendered God, of course. <laughs> um, 
but his name is Eru, or Iluvatar. The elves call him Iluvatar. Sometimes you'll hear him referred to as Eru Iluvatar. Sometimes it's just as Eru. Sometimes just as Iluvatar. Get ready for a lot of names. Um, another thing I'll say is that, like, if you don't pick up on everything right away, don't worry about it. <laughs> you won't at all. Don't try to remember all the names. Don't try to remember who they are. Uh, if a name becomes important and you're like, wait a minute, who's that? Just flip to the back and, you know, there's, like, an awesome index and you know, there are appendices out the wazoo, so you'll be fine. Just flip back to the back and you'll get it. Um, there are only really two names you need to remember from this section, from the Adelindale. One of them is Eru, duh, obviously, and the other one is Melkor, okay? So that first sentence continues. It says, there's Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he made first the Ainur, the holy ones, and they were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. Okay, so who are these Ainur fellas? Um, well, right at the beginning, I said that there's really only one god and that there are going to be some, like, kind of gods that come up. Those are the Ainur, okay? So basically, Eru, before there was anything else, well, he was just, you know, some god sitting in the middle of nowhere, twiddling his thumbs um, in the void. Uh, he decided, this void kind of sucks. I'm going to make something out of nothing, right? This is very typical of, like, early mythologies, right? So he makes these beings called the Ainur, and these are beings of, like, varying strength who you can kind of imagine are, like, angels and are kind of, like, demigods, okay? So he makes them, and he is like, we're going to make some good stuff together, you and me, lads, okay? We're going to make some good stuff. Um, by stuff, I mean the universe. So the way that this creation story works is... Eru says to the Ainur, um, let's make some music, baby. And they make some music, okay? They all start singing. They all have these beautiful, unique, independent voices, and all of their voices come together to create really beautiful music, right? They do this three times, okay? Uh, the reason they have to do it three times and not just once is because one of the Ainur, and this is the other name you need to remember, is a dude named Melkor. Melkor sucks. He represents everything that's bad, uh... There are four characteristics that he has that we'll get to that <laughs> are just, like, the world's worst characteristics. And these are characteristics that Tolkien sees as the worst things that you can be, okay? We'll get to them, but keep an eye on Melkor's character because he is the main thing that Tolkien is using, the main character, to criticize the present day, right? When Tolkien was writing this kind of throughout his life, ending in the 70s, okay? So Melkor starts to think... Yeah, this music's pretty good that we're all singing in this big empty void. But what if I made it a little bit better? The way I'm going to make it better is by being louder and really discordant and doing my own thing above everybody else's voice, okay? And when he does this, he kind of ruins the music, okay? And this is kind of Tolkien talking about free will a little bit. Um, you'll hear Tolkien kind of criticized as saying, like, oh, because he was such a Catholic, he just doesn't believe that, like, we have free will, and, like, as soon as this one dude, Melkor, tries to do one thing on his own, uh, you know, he gets punished for it. That's not really what's going on. The reason that Melkor gets punished by Eru, Eru, like, stops the music and was like, Melkor, stop that. Okay, let's do it again. Let's try it again. And they try and sing, and Melkor does this thing again, and he's like, Melkor, really? Stop it. And they do it again the third time, and Melkor ruins it again, blah, blah, blah. The reason that Melkor gets punished and kind of gets, like, scolded by Eru um, isn't because he's exercising his own free will. It's because his uniqueness and his free will is being used to disrupt the beauty that everybody else has created, okay? Um, 
So it isn't that he's just acted on his own and acting on your own is a bad thing. All the other Valar are acting on their own. It's just that they're coming together to create this kind of like emergent music, right? There's like emergence going on. The The music that they create together is better or at least something greater than the sum of all of their voices, right? So it's like they're, they're creating something so beautiful and so insane that they'd never be able to do it on their own. And they're doing this through cooperation, right? So as soon as Melkor comes along and is like, well, I want to be more unique than everybody and ruins the music, that's what Tolkien's criticizing. He's not criticizing free will, okay? So eventually, just to kind of skim over some stuff, Melkor, uh, Eru gets so upset that he's just like, okay, I was trying to get you guys to sing the universe into being, but since Melkor is, you know, kind of being a jerk, uh, I'm just going to show you what I wanted you to do. And he propounds to them like this big vision of the universe, right? And of Earth. And in this vision, we see why he wants to create a world, a habitable world, and indeed the entire universe. And it's because he wants to create a habitat for what Tolkien calls the children of Iluvatar, okay? The children of Iluvatar, that's a really easy concept, even though it kind of gets, like, tossed around in a very confusing way sometimes. All it is is elves and humans, okay? Um, uh, the purpose of the universe, then, is for Eru to make somewhere for his little, like, you know, humans who will eventually come into being and elves to live because he loves them so much. And, you know, he has this great idea for a great being and they're humans and they look like this and they're elves and they look like this. They got little pointy ears or whatever. Um, that's the purpose of the universe is a habitat, basically, for what he calls his kids, okay? All of all of the Ainur are, like, really on board with this. They all think it's really cool, uh, except for Melkor, <laughs> of course. Melkor is, like, such a jerk. He's like, well, well that's not cool. I'm going to do something cooler than that. Um, and here we see, like, the first inkling at one of those sins that I was talking about before that Melkor has that Tolkien uses to criticize the present, okay? Um, the first one's obviously pride, right? I mean, this is a proud dude. He's, like, thinks he's better than everybody else. He's not just happy with what they create. He's not just happy with who he is. He wants to get better to kind of, like, stick it to other people, right? Arrogance. That's bad. That's Tolkien hates that. Um, he's also very impatient. Um, he sings kind of, you know, he's just like, come on, yeah, let's just get to my part, whatever. I just want it to be all about me. Um, he's always isolating himself. He's never with the other, uh, children. <laughs> he always just kind of wants to, you know, do his own thing. And most importantly, he wants to dominate other beings. Okay. So as soon as he sees what Eru's plans wa were for the universe to create, you know, a little habitat for humans and for elves, he goes, oh, you know what? No way. I want to control these people. I don't want them to have free will. I want, as soon as these children come around, these humans, these elves, I want to control them, okay? So those are the four qualities that Melkor has that Tolkien sees as the worst qualities you can have, okay? Uh, pride, domination, impatience, and isolation, okay? We'll come back to that at the end. Let me just finish summarizing what happens in this chapter. To basically make a long story short, the Ainur are all super excited about this. They're like, damn, I can't wait to create this habitat and to help out and to see these little children of Iluvatar whenever they come into existence. Um, I can't wait to make a beautiful little world for them, right? So they get to work making uh, the perfect world. Earth in this is called Arda. Um, that's our world. It's supposed to be the same thing because remember, this is a mythology like for our existence. Um, and Melkor kind of immediately, as soon as they get to work, gets to work. <laughs> ruining what they've made, right? Or what they're making, which is pretty lame. Um, but it leads to a really important passage, which I'm going to kind of quote at length here, right? 
Um, one of the other one of ones of these powerful Ainur is a guy named Ulmo, who you can kind of think as being like a rough Poseidon equivalent, right? A lot of these uh, Ainur have um, rough equivalencies in other mythology. So Ulmo is all about the ocean. He's all about water. He, he loves all the water on the earth, and that's kind of his domain. And there's the other one who's the second most powerful after Melkor. That's Manway, baby. He's the king of all these fellas. Um and he's kind of, you can kind of think of him like Zeus. <laughs> okay, I can hear all of the Tolkien nerds getting mad at me for that. Now, for your first read-through, it's good to make equivalencies for these people, especially in Greek mythology, because at least for me, it made it a lot easier to just, you know, that's what they're like. That's who they are, okay? So it's kind of like Zeus and Olmo. Um, Melkor's thing is fire. That's kind of his element. He's the most powerful of all of these Ainur, but he's also the most destructive, obviously. So that's all the background that you kind of need for this uh, passage, right? This is while the Ainur are creating the world, almost going around making all the water, uh, you know, what's his name, Manway is doing all the clouds and stuff in the air or whatever. And almost getting really upset because Melkor is like melting all of his water with his fire, <laughs> right? So Olmo goes to Eru and he's like, bro, can you do something about Melkor? Melkor kind of sucks. Anyway, Tolkien says, so Iluvatar spoke to Ulmo and said, Seest thou not how here in this little realm of the deeps of time Melkor hath made war upon thy province? He hath bethought him of bitter cold a moderate, and yet hath not destroyed the beauty of thy fountains, nor thy clear pools. Behold the snow and the cunning work of frost. Melkor hath devised heats and fire without restraint, and hath not dried up thy desire, nor utterly quelled the music of the sea. Behold, rather, the height and glory of the clouds, and the ever-changing mists, and listen to the fall of the rain upon the earth. And in these clouds thou art drawn nearer to Manway, thy friend, whomst thou lovest. Uh, like I said, very verbose. So if you don't get anything on your first read-through, don't worry about it. That's all good. Basically, what Iluvatar, what Eru's saying to Ulmo is, yeah, I know that Melkor's doing all these evil things. He's trying to screw up what you were all doing in making the earth. He's melting your fountains, um, and he's doing all these bad things. But he's like, look what's happening from his evil deeds. When he melts your fountains, that all the water evaporates and it goes up into the sky and it creates clouds. And so there you're drawn closer to Manway, your brother, and that makes something more beautiful than anything you'd ever imagined. And then, you know, the clouds rain and you get more water, you know, put on different parts of the world. Um, isn't that cool, Olmo? And Olmo is basically like, yeah, damn, that actually is cool. All right, Melkor, nice try. You made something cool unintentionally. And this hits at what's going to be a huge theme in this book, okay, which is that Tolkien is not a modernist when it comes really to anything, but he's certainly not a modernist when it comes to morality, okay? He's not a moral relativist. I would also say that I kind of have a hard time with moral relativism too. Um, when something's evil, it's evil. Melkor's a bad dude. That's kind of it. He's just a bad guy. You can help him out, maybe, but at the end of the day, he just kind of sucks, and the things that he do does kind of suck. There are other characters throughout this book who are the opposite of that. They're good, and they're just pure, and they're just good things, right? It gets more complicated when we come to humans because they have, like, this desire to kind of, like, dominate and do bad things, which mirrors one of Melkor's great sins, right? Which is kind of, like, dominion and wanting to, like, master other things. But... It's very rare that Tolkien will admit that there was some good and an evil act, okay? And he's doing this here, in my opinion, to kind of like test the reader because 
In one of the passages in the future, there's a really great point where another one of these Ainur, a guy named Mando Sernamo, says that even though something good can come of an evil act, the original act remains evil, okay? So even though Melkor created some beauty in the world in his acts of, like, trying to destroy everything that, you know, the Ainur had created... It doesn't really matter because he still did something evil. You can't kind of like go around and slap him on the back and be like, yeah, yo, Melkor, uh, no worries, dude. I'm not going to like hassle you too hard because at the end of the day, like even though you tried to do something evil, it was pretty cool anyways. That that doesn't really fly in this world, okay? And even though Olmo goes away and he's like, oh, that was cool. Melkor, no worries, dude. You're kind of left with this this bad taste in your mouth about Melkor, okay? Because the Ainulindale ends with Tolkien saying that there's this there's this huge war basically between all of the Ainur and like basically just Melkor, right? That's not exactly true, but the the war it begins because Melkor is trying to screw everything up and the Ainur get so sick of it that they go to war with him, right? And in this war, so much of the world gets destroyed that Tolkien says that there isn't a single piece of the world that we live in now that hasn't in some way been corrupted. Okay? So there's nothing that's perfectly pure, okay? So even though Melkor in his like, you know, toddler-esque, uh, uh, how can I say this, um, uh, actions has created some good things like clouds, <laughs> you know, and like rain, I guess. Um, he still has done something totally evil. Okay. Um, and so that's where it ends. It ends with, yeah, with basically the Ainur going to create this world for the children of Iluvatar, for us and for elves um, but Melkor's screwing it all up. And that's the creation story. So to sum it all up, Eru, the one god, the only real god, creates a bunch of like lesser beings to create a world for us, okay? And they go about it in a very like haphazard way and nothing gets done really well. But it's important to note too, and this again speaks to Tolkien's Catholicism, that even though there is like nothing that has been uncorrupted there's nothing uncorrupted in the world everything that happened including all of the horrible things that melkor has done and will do and he'll do some pretty insanely evil stuff in this book um it's all part of eru's plan okay which is interesting and i mean it's obviously like a very religious take it's like everything you do is part of god's plan baby it's all god's plan don't worry about it uh you know your dog died in a car crash or something it's god's plan baby don't worry about it even though it's kind of silly on that level, it it does speak to this idea of morality that I don't think is a very modern one, obviously, because he's talking about religion. But you'll see what I mean in kind of like further parts of this book. This comes back again and again. Every now and then, Eru has to kind of like right some wrongs that happen on Earth. But for the most part, he just kind of lets it go and is like, oh yeah, this is what I wanted. <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, that's the Anilind Lay. If you read it, um, there's so much stuff in here that we didn't get to. I really didn't want to do just like a line by line thing. I, I did want to do that, but I figured I probably shouldn't because it was going forever. There's a really interesting passage on page 21 in the third paragraph down where it's as close that as Tolkien comes to talking about gender. It's very interesting. Um, he's, he's talking about what the Valar, who are like the most powerful of the Ainur, look like, right? And he says that they can look like whatever they want. They are kind of just like, you know, whatever. Um, but they 
give themselves raiments to look like the children of Iluvatar, which is basically to say to say to look like us, right? Because they're so in awe of like these of humans and of elves and the vision that they saw that they figure out if we're going to make a world to look like them, we might as well take that raiment for ourselves. Tolkien says something like, um, when they desire to clothe themselves, the Valar take upon them forms as of some male and as some female for that difference of temper they even had from the beginning, which, okay, whatever, that's not very progressive. But then he says, and it is but bodied forth in the choice of each, not made by the choice. Even as with us, male and female may be shown by the raiment but is not made thereby. I've, I've kind of gone over that passage a million times, and I still have no idea really what he's talking about. Because originally when I read it, I was like, damn, Tolkien's talking about, like, uh, you know, like, transgenderism, and he's talking all about, you know, like, uh, the kind of, like, construct of gender. But yeah, I don't think that's really what he's talking about. I don't know. I don't know. I only bring it up because it's one of the passages that's just kind of puzzled me. Um, I love that bit. Uh even as with us, male and female may be shown by the raiment, but is not made thereby. I, yeah, I don't know what that means. Let me know what it means if you if you figured it out. Um, it's awesome, though. There are a million other passages like that in here. Um, we'll be referencing this back if we do another episode a million times. Um, but, yeah, okay. So now that we've kind of explained the structure and the narrative of the Ainulindalae, Okay, now let's get back to talking about, like, why we're talking about this on a socialist podcast, okay? Um, let's begin with the enormous question of what is socialism, right? So, in, in as broad terms as possible, and this isn't a very scientific way of explaining it, this isn't a very concrete way of understanding it, but the end goal, right, is a society where we all have mastery over our own lives, right? It's one where we can do what we want, it's one where we can contribute what we want, and it's one where we can create a society that we want, okay? It's not one where we're, our lives are determined by, like, market factors, right? Or by um, uh, uh, the wage form or anything like that, okay? It's one where we decide who we want to be and what we want to do, okay? That's kind of like a very broad general way of understanding um, what it could be, right? What socialism is, um, and the main thing, to me at least, that Tolkien is criticizing in the Silmarillion about the modern age, but he specifically does this in this chapter, in this part, the Einolindale, is that he's reacting kind of against the atomization of, of our world, okay, right? It's one where you've got to do what you've got to do, okay, and you've got to get ahead and, you know, market, 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 baby, and I, now I got to work, I got to go do this, my life is defined by my wage, blah, 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 blah. To Tolkien, <laughs> I think he would agree with the socialist that, that those are qualities in a society that don't make a great one, okay? Um, whether it's just because we go to work, and we come home, and we eat, and then we have to go to bed because we got to work the next day, and we don't ever get to take time off, and it's all this stuff, and our lives are determined by economic forces that are just way outside of our reach, Right. That leads, that leads to a real lack of, I don't, I don't want to sound like a hippie, but like a lack of like understanding and a lack of communication and of fulfillment among people, right? So to Tolkien, the main thing that Melkor is doing wrong, like I said, it isn't that he has free will. It's that he's ruining things for other people, okay? 
You'll see in all of Tolkien's works, this is like 100% a rule for every character in anything that he wrote. Whenever a character tries to act alone, they run into trouble, okay? Whether that's they get killed or they just screw their lives up or they screw everyone else's lives up, that's bad. That's a bad quality. Wanting to just be by yourself, that's bad. That's isolation, okay? But whenever characters act in harmony with each other, as the Einor did here or as the Fellowship does in the trilogy, et cetera, et cetera, um, good things happen, okay? So individualism is something that modernists, I think, kind of uh, blow out of proportion. It's not great. Individualism kind of sucks, okay? And it, <laughs> at least the individualism that we have in our age, okay? And Tolkien understood that. Tolkien understood that individualism leads to isolation. It leads to this kind of like Ayn, Ayn Randian view of the world where you just got to do what you got to do, man. Uh, what was her whole thing? Um, uh uh, it was a, uh, I don't know, something stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 it was that altruism, <laughs> altruism is a vice, okay? That is not what Tolkien would think. Tolkien is all about altruism. Even though this is a dude who is like a middle-class Tory through and through, um, so much of uh, the trilogy, The Hobbit, 100%, there's like no women in The Hobbit at all. Um, so much of these books are just about like... Uh, basically like white men doing good things um in this film really he kind of bucks that a little bit i'm not saying a lot but if you had to kind of like make a list of the most important characters in this book a good amount of them if not most of them would be the women characters right so at least he's kind of got that going for him so even though this is like a middle class tory who's super behind on like gender politics <laughs> uh, views of society things like that he does understand that these problems, these, you know, Ayn Randian views of individualism, these, this trend of atomization in our current age, he does understand that those are bad things, okay? Now, even though he looks to the past to find answers to this, he kind of looks to, like, an imagined, like, idealized, feudal society as, like, oh, when we were better, just the good old days, right? Whereas someone like Ursula Le Guin would probably, like, look to the future, like, in something like, um... Uh, dispossessed, she creates a piece of, like, futuristic utopian uh, uh, art, I guess, book, whatever, where she is like, but here's how things could be. They've never been like this, but here's how they could be. Tolkien's doing the opposite. Tolkien's looking to the past for answers to, you know, why does this world suck so much, okay? Um, and and in doing so, he's he's really critiquing modernism in a way, in a way that rocks, quite frankly, because I don't, I'm not going to speak for Dan, but like, this is not a very, at least I'm, like I said before, not really a moral relativist and in a lot of ways. I mean, like if, if something's evil, I think just by virtue of you being a conscious person, you can make a couple of value judgments and decide that there are some things that are just evil. Okay, right? Bad's bad. Good's good. Eh, call me crazy. But you'll see Tolkien throughout this critiquing modernism in a way that is not intentionally socialist, but hopefully, hopefully, I'll be able to prove um, that quite a bit of it can be read as such, okay? Um, so if I do do this again, we're going to be getting into the second part, um, which is the Valaquenta, which rocks. It's so cool. Um, Valaquenta, I don't know, all it is is like listing who these Ainur and, you know, Valar and Maiar, all these kind of like uh, powerful beings that Eru created are, and it's so cool. It's so cool. You get some of the best writing in the entire book, just in descriptions of characters, right? It's awesome. Uh, Sauron comes up a bit, just to kind of mention who he was. Gandalf, or Olorin, comes up a bit. Um, 
Uh, and it's just so cool. So if we do do another episode, we'll talk about that. But read this book and remember that even though Tolkien was not one of us, even though Tolkien was not necessarily a socialist, well, not necessarily, he's a straight up wasn't a socialist, obviously, um, there are shared values that I think we all can agree are universal. And that doesn't matter if you're like some chud, uh, if you're uh, a lib, if you're a commie, if you're an anarchist. I, I do believe that there are some values that everybody holds that even though they get expressed in radically different ways, you know, like, like I said, like Tolkien looking to the past to like fucking feudalism, <laughs> right? For answers. It's like, yeah, Tolkien, that was much more progressive than right now, which is a joke. Um, you do see that we share values, right? And whether or not you take importance from that about like, oh, bro, we're all just like, we're all just like the same people, aren't we, dude? Uh, or whether or not you can use that uh, to win in some kind of way as socialists, um, it's important. It's important. And honestly, this is just an awesome book. I think I'm, I'm saying all this stuff, but dude, this book just rocks. There are some stories in here that'll knock your goddamn socks off. If we ever get to Turin to Rambar, oh my God, <laughs> that story is so good. And all of the bit about like the bits about like Baron and Luthien obviously rock. The bits about Idril and Tuor are like the coolest like, dragon that is like, like oh my God, so big so that when it dies and falls out of the sky, it destroys not one not two, but three mountains. That's a big dragon. All right, that's a pretty goddamn big dragon. Um, yeah, I'm excited. This book rocks. But like I said, read it with a critical eye. Know that Tolkien wasn't a socialist, but know that there are values in here that if you can pick them apart a bit, you can understand that this is a valuable book um, for us to read as socialists. Um, and even though we don't talk about like fiction at all, on the podcast. I kind of wanted to do this because it's just fun. This book is so good. That's all I want to say. Okay. Uh, I'll quit talking about it. Maybe we'll do this again sometime. Maybe we won't. But if we don't read the book, it's so good. Also, crap, I forgot to say, this song that you're hearing right now, the one that you heard at the beginning, oh, isn't this a good one? This is from the same demo collection, actually, um, as for the normal intro for the show, for the normal show. This is King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. The song is called Music to Eat Bananas To. Go to their Bandcamp, kinggizzard.bandcamp.com check it out buy it buy this whole album get really into them buy all their other albums a lot of albums you're gonna have to save up but man is it worth it they're all so good 